Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Bankruptcy Code Safe Harbors. Thomas Loam, a bankruptcy partner at Cullen and Dykeman and the treasurer of the New York City Bar Association, is joined by moderator Camille Bent, a bankruptcy and restructuring partner at Baker Hostetler, Philip Anker, co-chair of the Bankruptcy and Financial Restructuring Practice Group at Wilmer Hale, and Jonathan Flaxer, a partner at Gollenbach, Eisman, Asser, Bell, and Pesco. All are members of the City Bar's Bankruptcy and Corporate Reorganization Committee. Here's Thomas Sloan. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Sloan. I'm a bankruptcy partner at Cullen and & Dykeman, and I'm the treasurer of the New York City Bar Association. I'm very happy to be part of this podcast entitled Bankruptcy Code Safe Harbors, in particular because it's the first one that the City Bar is sponsoring for CLE credit. Uh, In a moment, I will explain what you need to do to get CLE credit, so please listen carefully. But first, let me introduce the speakers. Our moderator today is Camille Bent, a bankruptcy and restructuring partner at Baker Hostetler. Our two panelists are also bankruptcy lawyers, Philip Anker, a partner at Wilmer Hale, and Jonathan Flaxer, a partner at Goldenbach, Eisman, Asser, Bell, and Pesco. Like me, Camille, Phil, and John are members of the Bankruptcy and Corporate Reorganization Committee of the New York City Bar Association. They're gonna discuss the safe harbor provided in the bankruptcy code against certain fraudulent transfer claims and recent decisions in the Second Circuit and the US Supreme Court concerning that safe harbor. Phil and John were both involved in these cases uh, on opposite sides. Phil filed an amicus brief on the defense side in the Supreme Court case Merit Management. He briefed and argued the Tribune case in the Second Circuit, and he was counsel of record for the defendants in the Supreme Court on plaintiff's petition for cert review. John worked on the amicus brief in the Supreme Court on the other side, supporting the petition by the plaintiffs for cert review in Tribune. First, a quick disclaimer, and then the logistics for claiming your CLE credit. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are the opinions and views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of their law firms or clients. The views do not constitute legal advice and are for general informational purposes only. Now for how to claim your CLE credit, keep an ear out for the code, which I will announce once during the podcast. Once you listen to the podcast, please email the City Bar Customer Relations Department at customerrelations at nycbar.org. Include your name and the name of the podcast, Bankruptcy Code Safe Harbors, and note that you would like CLE credit. When they receive your email, the City Bar will send you two attachments that you need to complete before you can receive your credit. One is an evaluation form and the other is an affirmation form. The affirmation will ask you to include the CLE course code that I will announce during the podcast. Once you complete your evaluation affirmation, email them both to the same um, email address, customerrelations at nycbar.org. And once the City Bar receives your affirmation evaluation, they will be processed and you should receive your CLE certificate by email within three to five business days. Again, I will announce the course code once during the program, so please listen carefully and make note of it when I announce it. With all that out of the way, I will turn it over to our moderator, Camille, to set the stage. Thank you, Tom. First, a bit of background. When a company files for bankruptcy, a central issue that often emerges is whether in the period before the filing, the company made any payments that preferred certain unsecured creditors over others, and potentially even more significantly, 
whether it transferred any assets to its shareholders or insiders or perhaps others that left it unable to pay its creditors. A payment to one unsecured creditor outside the core, outside of the ordinary course of business that allows that creditor to recover more than any, more than other unsecured creditors would recover in the bankruptcy case may be avoided or clawed back as a preference under section 547 of the bankruptcy code if the debtor made the payment within 90 days of the bankruptcy filing or within one year if the creditor was an insider of the debtor. And transfers by insolvent debtors to creditors or equity holders for less than fair value or no value at all can be potentially clawed back as so-called, quote, fraudulent transfers. There are two types of fraudulent transfer claims, intentional and constructive fraudulent transfers. As its name suggests, an intentional fraudulent transfer entails a transfer of property made by a debtor with actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud creditors. That intent can be hard to prove. So the law provides an alternative, a claim for constructive fraudulent transfer. In such a claim, the plaintiff bankruptcy estate or creditor must show two things. One, that the debtor did not receive reasonably equivalent value for the property that it transferred. And two, that it was insolvent or undercapitalized at the time or was rendered insolvent and or undercapitalized by the transfer. It need not prove that the debtor made the transfer with actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud its creditors. Now, the Bankruptcy Code contains two different fraudulent transfer provisions. First, under Section 548, a bankruptcy trustee or other estate representative can avoid a transfer made within two years of the bankruptcy filing if the transfer was an intentional or constructive fraudulent conveyance. Second, under Section 544, A bankruptcy trustee or other estate representative can avoid a transfer if an unsecured creditor could have done so under state or other non-bankruptcy fraudulent transfer law immediately before the debtor filed for bankruptcy. Now, this is important because state fraudulent transfer laws typically allow for the avoidance of intentional or constructive fraudulent transfers made more than two years before the suit or in this case, the bankruptcy is filed. So-called reachback period um, can be as long as six years in New York, although that period has been reduced here in New York to four years for post-April 2020 transfers in New York's brand new adoption of the Uniform Voidable Transactions Act. But as the bankruptcy code gives with one hand, it takes away with the other. Section 546 of the code provides a safe harbor against all fraudulent claims other than intentional fraudulent transfer claims under Section 548 directed at many transfers involving securities. The safe harbor thus insulates the protected transactions against all constructive fraudulent transfer claims and even intentional fraudulent transfer claims where the transfer occurred more than two years before the bankruptcy filing. And as the cases that Bill and John will discuss show, the safe harbor can be significant 
because it is not uncommon for companies that file for bankruptcy to have engaged in engaged pre-petition and things like leveraged buyouts or leveraged recapitalizations or other securities transactions in which their then shareholders receive significant value in the form of redemptions, dividends, or the like. So John, can you start us off by explaining the elements of the safe harbor? Yes, that would be my pleasure. And thank you, Camille, for that concise introduction to the topic. Um, Congress in Section 546E of the Bankruptcy Code created a so-called safe harbor for certain types of, let's call them securities-related transactions. So the code relying on a series of defined terms um, starts out with this notion that the transfer must be either a margin payment or a, a settlement payment. I'm not going to read the definitions, but you can get the idea that these are basically the types of payments that are typically made in the securities or the commodities markets, purchases and sales of stock, options, commodities, swaps, all sorts of exotic instruments. Um, in order to qualify, there needs to be a qualifying participant. So the code lists a series of entities which need to be a participant to the transaction in order to qualify for the safe harbor. A financial institution, a financial participant, a stockbroker, a commodity broker, a forward contract merchant, a securities clearing agency, um, the types of entities you would expect. Um, little mental footnote here, um, there's a wrinkle in the definition of financial institution that relates to the term customer, which we will get back to, but it's very important. Um, and lastly, you have to have a qualifying transaction, meaning the payment that is safe harbored, must be made in connection with a securities contract. Again, these are defined terms, a commodities contract or a forward contract. And once again, you sort of get the big picture that Congress was concerned with protecting the integrity of the securities markets and didn't want participants in those markets worried that, you know, two, three, four years later, there could be a bankruptcy and these type of transactions could be upset. Great, thanks, John. Uh, the cases we're going to discuss will concern the second requirement, the qualifying participant. And in particular, one of the six categories of such a participant, the financial institution. But before we get there, Phil, can you briefly review the first requirement, the law on the first requirement, the qualifying transaction? Sure, thanks, Camille. Um, so the way the statute reads is um, a settlement payment or margin payment, and I'm gonna focus on settlement payment, or a transfer in connection with a securities contract, uh, it qualifies as a uh, for protection. 
as long as it is made by two or for the benefit of one of the fit, uh, qualifying participants. So first, the test is disjunctive. It can either be a settlement payment or a transfer in connection with a securities contract. If it's both, then it's double protected. Uh, but the two terms have been read very expansively by the courts, particularly in the Second Circuit, but not exclusively in the Second Circuit. Um, the code defines settlement payment in a way the courts have aptly said is circular. It's defined, get this, to mean a preliminary settlement payment, a partial settlement payment, an interim settlement payment, a final settlement payment, or any similar payment commonly used in the securities industry. Um, what the courts have said over and over is that a settlement payment is a payment that effects or uh, closes or settles a securities transaction. Um, and critically, and in maybe the most significant case on expanding that definition, it is held that while obviously a payment made to purchase uh, a security, to purchase stock would qualify, there doesn't have to be a purchase requirement. The most significant case in the Second Circuit was Enron. Enron, shortly before it went into bankruptcy, repurchase commercial paper before it was due, before it had matured, that it had issued. And a suit was brought by the bankruptcy estate to recover those payments as a preference. The defendants argued that the exception for settlement payment applied. And uh, the plaintiff said, no, it doesn't. You, Enron, simply um, retired the commercial paper. It was like paying off the principal on a loan. You didn't buy and hold the commercial paper. And the Second Circuit said, that's right. Enron didn't buy back the commercial paper. It didn't own it at the conclusion of the transaction. But that didn't matter. There's no purchase or sale requirement. And since then, courts have held that redemptions of stock and the like by a company, cancellation of stock as part of an LBO qualifies. On the in connection, the other alternative in connection with a securities contract, the interpretation's even been broader. And perhaps the most famous or infamous case, depending on your perspective, is the Second Circuit's decision in Madoff, um, where um, what was at issue, could Madoff, could the bankruptcy trustee uh, recover payments made by Madoff to investors when he was operating a Ponzi scheme. He didn't actually invest in securities. He just took new investors' money and paid it to old investors. And the Second Circuit said, no, those claims are blocked unless it's an intentional fraudulent transfer claim under Section 548 by the safe harbor because there was a contract between the investor and Madoff for Madoff to invest the the um, investor's money in securities, that Madoff failed to do so meant he breached the securities contract, but not that there was no securities contract. And the court went on to say, the requirement in the statute is only that the transfer be, quote, in connection with, end quote, a securities contract. It doesn't say in adherence to or in compliance with a securities contract. So where a payment is made in breach of a securities contract, it is still a payment made in connection with a securities contract. And hence, the safe harbor blocked the avoidance claims to recover those payments, even though there had never been securities 
purchased by um, uh, Mr. Madoff and his company, uh, BLMIS. Great explanation, thank you. So from there, let's turn to the other requirement for the safe harbor, namely that the transfer be by, to, or for the benefit of a financial institution or one of the other qualifying entities specified in section 546E. One might not think that requirement would lead to a lot of litigation, but it has. Indeed, it's gotten all the way to the Supreme Court. John, can you explain the question that the Supreme Court resolved in the merit management case? And then also, how did the Supreme Court answer it? Sure, let me take a crack at that. So this type of litigation often is generated from LBOs, leveraged buyout transactions, um, in which, as we all know, a company is acquired based on borrowed funds, the collateral for which is in essence, the assets of the very company that's being acquired. So when these transactions are structured, you have big, um, you know, big companies involved and they don't just sit down and hand stock to one and the other hands cash to the other. You know, these are large corporate transactions which inevitably utilize financial intermediaries. So this gets right to the question of, you know, what the words in the statute by or to or for the benefit of mean. And in essence, a split in the circuits developed over this question. A majority of circuits held that you don't just look to the beginning party and the ending party. If you have financial intermediaries, which you always do or almost always do, then the entire transaction will be safe harbored. So for example, let's take the facts of the merit management case, which is the one that reached the Supreme Court. To quickly summarize the facts, and this involves a privately held company. Um, one harness racing company agreed to acquire a competitor. Merit, defendant, was a stockholder in the seller, and it received $16.5 million of the sale proceeds. But as part of a typical structuring of this type of a transaction, the purchase price funds were escrowed with one bank, and the stock certificates to be acquired were deposited with another bank. Banks are obviously financial institutions. Um, it, it got up to the Supreme Court. As I mentioned, the majority of circuits took the view that this would be a safe harbored transaction. A minority took the opposite view. And in a decision penned by uh, Justice Sotomayor, um, she rejected the, ma the majority view and held that the intermediary institutions were mere conduits, if you will which should be disregarded 
in analyzing this transaction for purposes of the safe harbor. You focus on, if you will, A and D, meaning the B and C intermediate entities, the financial institutions are disregarded. And since neither the acquirer or the acquiree, the two harness racing companies, since they were not financial institutions or otherwise covered by the statute, the safe harbor did not apply and the plaintiff was free to pursue the claim. So with that decision by Justice Sotomayor in Merit Management, you would think that no major legal issues would remain about the qualifying participant requirement for application of the safe harbor at least as to whether the transfer was by to or for by or to a financial institution and that indeed the safe harbor would not be all that significant anymore after all most companies that file for bankruptcy and that made the payments in leveraged buyouts and most of their shareholders that received such payments also are not banks but that proved not to be the case indeed the supreme court left open a critical issue in merit management Phil, can you explain that issue? Sure. So um, let me provide the sort of statutory basis. And this is sort of a classic example. We all know it as lawyers read the statute and don't assume what it means. So the bankruptcy code defines a financial institution in a way that makes common sense at the beginning. A Federal Reserve Bank or an entity that's a commercial or savings bank, I won't go on, or a trust companies, things that you'd think of are banks, but then he or financial institutions. But here's the key part. And when any such Federal Reserve Bank receiver, liquidating agent, conservator, or entity is acting as agent or custodian for a customer, I'm going to leave a few words out, in connection with a securities contract, such customer. So I happen to be at oral argument. We had filed an amicus brief, as, as Tom noted or Camille noted at the outset. And I was at oral argument in the Supreme Court. And Justice Breyer, um, in his, uh, as is his wont, sort of very smart, obviously had a very good bench memo, uh, said, why are we here? Why aren't you, the defendant, arguing that um, these casinos, these racinos, are themselves financial institutions because they're a customer, after all, of the different banks that Jonathan mentioned. Um, and uh, when the, the answer to that question was it hadn't been argued, and the Supreme Court, therefore, in its opinion in merit management, dropped a footnote in which it wrote, quote, the parties here do not contend that either the debtor or petitioner in this case qualified as a, quote, financial institution end quote, by virtue of its status as a, quote, customer, end quote, under the bankruptcy code definition. Uh, says that the petitioner only argued the point in footnotes and didn't argue it uh, dictates the outcome. And then the court wrote, we therefore do not address what impact, if any, the definition, section 10122A of the code, would have in the application of the section 546C safe harbor. And those of us who represent defendants in these cases noted that footnote and said uh, there is still an argument to be made. That was the issue that was left. 
So the moral is you have to check the footnotes when you're reading these decisions. And you have to read statutes and, and definitions and not assume they are what you would intuit they would be. Definitely, definitely. So after the Supreme Court decided management, that issue came before the Second Circuit in Tribune, a case with a lot of money at stake and a convoluted procedural history. John, can you briefly describe the facts and procedural history of Tribune? Yes, I'm going to describe a slice of the procedural history. It's remarkably complex. There are actually three Second Circuit decisions. One of them I will not even discuss because it deals with sort of related but not directly relevant issues. But to start from the beginning, I think we go back to 2007, um, Tribune uh, was the subject of an LBO. Now, just big picture, keep in mind that Tribune, unlike Merit, was a public company. This was an $8 billion LBO. Um, the existing shareholders received $8 billion, as is, in, as, as, as is the case in most LBOs, from borrowed funds. And of course, computer share, a financial institution, served as the depository for the shares. Company failed, otherwise we'd have no story here. And chapter 11 ensued. Um, so the creditors committee and a state representative brought actual fraud claims against the selling shareholders, but did not bring constructive fraud claims. Two-year statute of limitations expires for the estate to bring these claims and creditors, primarily hedge funds, brought a series of state law constructive fraudulent conveyance claims. Keep in mind that I think all 50 states have, or if not all, most have their own fraudulent conveyance statutes, which are not dissimilar to the bankruptcy codes fraudulent conveyance statute in 548, but they often have longer statutes of limitations. So these creditors, mostly hedge funds, asked, asked the bankruptcy court for stay relief to commence these actions. Stay relief was granted initially just to file complaints. I think the number is 74 separate complaints were filed in different courts around the country. Um, ultimately, a plan was confirmed uh, with the support of the creditors committee. Um, stay relief was sort of finalized, if you will. Stay was vacated. A liquidation trustee was appointed under the plan to take over the claims that the that the creditors committee had commenced. And under the plan, the creditors were authorized to continue these state law claims. Um, and then all of these claims, meaning the liquidation trustees claims and the creditors direct claims were consolidated in an MDL in the Southern District. Um, going to 
try to cut through this as best I can. The district court, all this went up to the district court, which dismissed the creditor claims for lack of standing, in essence, based on a position that the automatic stay deprived them of standing while the liquidation trustee was in essence seeking to undo the same transactions, albeit under a different legal theory, the actual fraud theory. Um, but the district court also ruled that the claims were not preempted. By claims, I mean the direct claims brought by the creditors. Of course, both sides appeal and the Supreme Court affirmed, but kind of Flip the script. Uh, the I'm sorry. Second circuit. Second circuit. <laughs> Both sides appeal to the second circuit. The second circuit um, affirmed on the grounds of preemption that the claims were in fact preempted, but not on standing. That yes, these creditors had standing because the stay had been lifted, but the claims were preempted, which we'll get into in a little more detail. Um, and again, I'm skipping lots of little ins and outs here. The petitioners then filed a petition for certiorari. While that was pending, the Supreme Court issued a merit management decision, which we have discussed. Uh, in light of that, um, the Second Circuit withdrew its mandate and issued an amended decision. And in its amended decision, the Second Circuit adhered to its ruling on preemption and took note of merit management, but relied on the customer exception um, in order to reach the result that these claims could not be pursued. It's now time for the CLE course code. So please listen carefully. The code is CBPOD9121. That stands for City Bar Pod. So again, it's CBPOD9121. Great. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, John. Um, right before we heard the code, John mentioned that the Second Circuit had uh, released that decision um, and that the Supreme Court had, re uh, there was a remand. Um, Phil, what happened on that remand? Yeah, so it actually wasn't technically a remand. This was sort of an, a, this tells you something about how big these transactions are. The Supreme Court appeared not to have a quorum. Uh, because so many of the justices, I assume, in one way or another, had investments uh, in Tribune or in companies that had invested in Tribune, and therefore, I think more realistically, the latter, um, and therefore had an interest in the case. Two justices, um, Justice Thomas and Justice Kennedy, uh, wrote a statement. I've never heard of a statement by the Supreme Court, but apparently they issued them. Uh, just these two justices saying to the Second Circuit, you may want to consider withdrawing your mandate and reconsidering your decision in light of merit. 
Um, the Second Circuit did so, asked for further briefing, um, not further argument, and we then got to the decision we're going to discuss. Um, let me try to lay the predicate here for one minute. As John mentioned, uh, before merit, there was this conflict in the circuits on whether it was sufficient that there be a mere in bank as an intermediary, and that would protect the transaction. The Second Circuit had come out on the side of saying, yes, that would, um, that would protect the transaction. And therefore, as a way around that decision, uh, the, uh, what happened in Tribune that John described occurred. The bankruptcy estate did not bring a uh, lawsuit seeking uh, under Section 544 or the constructive fraudulent transfer part of Section 548, seeking to avoid the transfer. Rather, it consented to allow the creditors to do so. And the basic argument was, um, even if 546E would block the bankruptcy estate from bringing such claims under the bankruptcy code, it doesn't block creditors from doing so under state law. If you read Section 546E, it says, notwithstanding Section 544, 547, or 548, it doesn't say notwithstanding state law, the trustee, it doesn't say creditors, may not avoid a transfer that is a uh, either a transfer in connection with a securities contract or a settlement payment made by two or for the benefit of a qualifying participant. And so that was the argument. So um, the argument that had been made initially in Tribune, in Tribune 1, before merit that prevailed, is that the mere fact that there was a bank as an intermediary in the Tribune transaction would have been good enough to block the claim if it were brought by a bankruptcy trustee, and therefore it should block the claim brought by creditors because otherwise it would frustrate the purposes of Congress in enacting Section 546E, and it would end up nullifying it, and therefore under implied conflict preemption, it was barred. And the first time uh, the case went up, Tribune 1, that's exactly what the Second Circuit held. So now we fast forward, Merritt comes out, the case goes back to the Second Circuit, and there's really two issues now. First is an issue of statutory construction. Would Section 546E block this claim if it were brought by a bankruptcy trustee under Section 544 or 548? And second, even if it does, uh, can creditors bring the claim under state law or is it preempted and does merit affect the Second Circuit's prior preemption analysis? The first issue, um, defendants argued, uh, hold on a second. Remember that footnote in Merritt we talked about a few minutes ago? Remember the definition of the statute? Um, uh, it may not matter any longer after Merritt whether an intermediary is a financial institution, but our argument is that Tribune, a media company, is a financial institution because it, is a, it was a customer of a bank the bank through which it deposited the $8 billion and the shares came through, which was acting as agent for Tribune in connection with a securities contract. And the Second Circuit proceeded through the definition and said, that's exactly right. It said, first, uh, there was a financial institution involved. There was a bank as an intermediary. 
Second, Tribune was its customer. Customers not defined in the code, so you apply the common law definition. A customer is anyone who buys goods or services from someone or in the banking industry deposits funds. Tribune had deposited $8 billion with the bank, computer share trust company NA. Um, third, it was acting as agent, that is computer share for Tribune. There's been a lot of litigation about this. Um, I'm now gonna start giving my first bias. I was on the defense side of this case. I never quite understood the argument on the other side. Tribune didn't, like computer share didn't get the $8 billion and be in it with the right to use it. It didn't get the shares with the right to keep it. It was taking those as agent for Tribune. It was an inter, it was that sort of the, an intermediary is by definition, I would submit an agent. And finally, this was all in connection with a securities contract, the contract for Tribune to repurchase the stock from its um, shareholders. And that then the court proceeded to the preemption issue. And it said, look, Merit had nothing to do with preemption. Um, and let's go through the analysis again. And what it said is it said, first, Yes, there is a general presumption against preemption, but that presumption is most strong when you're dealing in an area of law that the states traditionally regulate to the exclusion of the federal government. That's not true of bankruptcy. I think bankruptcy is one of the only two areas where there's an explicit um, grant in the U.S. Constitution of authority to Congress to do something. This isn't the Commerce Clause. There's a bankruptcy clause, and federal bankruptcy law has existed until since time immemorial. Um, and so it said that presumption doesn't get, uh, isn't really significant. And then it examined the plate of second argument, which is hold on a second. The statute says, notwithstanding 544 or 548, the trustee may not avoid. We're not dealing with a 544 or 548 claim. We're dealing with a state law fraudulent transfer claim, and it's not being brought by a trustee. And the court said, well, if you sort of dig into the statute, um, it's not at all clear the statute cuts your way, plaintiffs. Your whole theory, which is that, is that, which is that although when a bankruptcy is filed, the bankruptcy trustee gets to bring these fraudulent transfer claims to the exclusion of the creditors, somehow they revert back to uh, creditors. There's no such provision in the bankruptcy code. There's nothing that explicitly says that in any way. Um, and so we don't read the statute uh, as, um, as really cutting your way. Um, and so then, and indeed it seemingly would be inconsistent with the statute. After all, the whole notion is to centralize with a trustee its ability to bring these claims. And the trustee still gets to bring intentional fraudulent transfer claims under 548. How could he bring them and settle them if creditors can bring their own lawsuits? And so the court said the statute doesn't get us there. So now let's deal with classic conflict preemption. And the court said, look, the whole purpose of the safe harbor is to protect these transactions from avoidance, to, to to, to not disrupt the securities markets in major cases where there are you know, $8 billion leverage buyouts that lead to bankruptcies. And it's gonna disrupt it just as much if the lawsuit is brought by creditors 
than if it's brought by uh, bankruptcy trustees, it will undo all the protections that the statute is designed to um, provide to um, the holders uh, uh, of securities and the securities markets. And finally, it said that merit really doesn't speak to the question at all, and therefore it stuck to its gun on preemption, and that's what happened in the Second Circuit. Thanks, Phil. So, John, the creditor plaintiffs filed another cert petition with the Supreme Court in Tribune. What happened? What ended up happening with that petition? So the the creditors did indeed file a cert petition, which not surprisingly challenged the preemption ruling as well as the statutory construction employed by the Second Circuit on the use of the term customer, which we have discussed at length. Um, the respondents led by Mr. Anker um, pointed out the lack of any circuit split. Um, they, they observed that uh, the Second Circuit got it completely right on the definition of customer, and they um, vigorously defended the Second Circuit's preemption argument for, for the reasons Mr. Anchor has just outlined for us. Um, several um, amici were filed, including one by a group of bankruptcy trustees of which I was one of the um, one of them, uh, which argued in essence that the preemption ruling was not only plainly erroneous, but had serious negative policy implications um, by prohibiting paths of recoveries for creditors to right the wrongs that were visited on them. The most interesting brief was the one that the Supreme Court requested from the Solicitor General as to whether or not the Supreme Court should accept cert. And in brief summary, the Solicitor General advised that um, this was not ripe for certiorari because this issue had not been addressed by other circuits and the Supreme Court should wait for the law to germinate and develop in other circuits before it accepts cert. In doing so, however, it did argue pretty vigorously, I personally think pretty persuasively, that the preemption ruling of the Second Circuit was incorrect. So the Supreme Court denied cert. Given yes. that denial, I'm sorry, I, I, I left out the punchline. <laughs> I denied cert. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, given that denial of cert, right? Is the law on Section 546E now set? What do you think, Phil? Um, I think it is certainly advanced, but set. Um, I wouldn't go so far. Um, first. The only circuit, as John just pointed out, uh, uh, that's dealt with it is the is the second. The issue hasn't uh, the the customer prong and preemption issues, statutory construction and the constitutional preemption issue have not been addressed by any other circuit in, in the nation. 
And I do think it's a, you know, if a split were to develop, you might have a chance of it going up to the Supreme Court. Even in the Second Circuit, which seems to get by far the, the biggest cases, there are attempts to um, uh, distinguish and nibble at the edges uh, on Tribune. Um, there are a couple of cases I'm involved in that are pending. Uh, there's a case called uh, Nine West. Um, the plaintiffs love to point to these cases and say, so Nine West, which um, you know was a fashion company, and Tribune, which was a media company, and I'm going to get to it, Boston Generating, which was a power plant, they're all somehow financial institutions. There's something crazy here. Um, but in, in Nine West was also an LBO, um, and they, it, it, their a fraudulent transfer claim was brought. It's very similar. The money went through a bank there. I think it was Wells Fargo. Um, and the district court adopted the very same analysis following Tribune and dismissed the claim, saying that uh, the company that was the target of the LBO, uh, Nine West or Jones Group, um, which was its prior name, was itself a financial institution because it was a customer of a bank that was acting as its agent. In that case, the, the, the plaintiff, and it's now pending on appeal in the Second Circuit, argues that even if Tribune is right, and this is just a statutory construction case, if I recall right, um, it, it doesn't matter uh, because um, uh, there, if you really look through the documents, it says it was the, the new purchaser who was going to take the company private, not the target company that controlled the bank. And therefore, the, the bank was not acting as agent for the transferor, the, the company that actually repurchased its stock. The district court, Judge Rakoff, rejected that argument um, based on the documents and based on the common sense that it doesn't make a lot of sense that when you're transferring uh, billions of dollars, in that case a billion plus, of a company's money, um, the bank is not acting as the company's agent. Um, in Boston Generating, that was a leveraged recapitalization um, and it was structured in a um, sort of somewhat sui generis way, or at least not the same way as all of these. A loan was made to a subsidiary. The subsidiary upstreamed the money to the parent. The parent then transferred the money to its shareholders to buy back the stock. And the plaintiff's theory is, well, the, the under the bankruptcy code, to give a little bit of background, you can recover a transfer not only from the immediate recipient, the immediate transferee, but a subsequent transferee for whose benefit it is. So they say the transfer from the subsidiary debtor to the parent debtor was for the benefit of the ultimate shareholders, but that transfer is not itself either a settlement payment or a transfer in connection with a securities contract because it was simply a dividend up to the parent and it was only when the parent repurchased the stock um, that you had a securities transaction or a settlement payment. Uh, the bankruptcy court rejected that argument. It's now up on appeal in the district court. Also, as I said, it, it, the decisions um, um, are, uh, are mostly in the Second Circuit. There's at least one bankruptcy court decision outside the Second Circuit, a, a 
case in Detroit, Eastern District of Michigan, in a bankruptcy called Greek Town, um, that uh, uh, dis that disagrees with Tribune says that an agent requires more than a ministerial, uh, what it calls ministerial actions that the banks took here, um, uh, and therefore says that a bank in a context like this is, quote, an intermediary, end quote, not a um, not an agent. So the cases, you know, there will be efforts in the Second Circuit to, to, to pare back, if you will, Tribune. And in addition to that, I think there will be lots of law in other circuits and we'll have to see where it all goes. That's right. Okay. So Tribune, um, you guys were both on opposite sides of Tribune. I'm going to put you both in the the, the ring, so to speak, and let you both make your case. As a matter of statutory construction, was Tribune a financial institution under the bankruptcy code's definition of that term? I think we got a preview of what Phil might think about this. So let's start with John. What do you think, John? Well, to the extent you're setting this up as a debate, I may sort of let you down a little bit here. Um, in Tribune, um, in light of the plain meaning of the definition of financial institution in the bankruptcy code, including its, you know, last sentence about customer, it's a tough argument that um, Tribune wouldn't qualify as a customer under these facts. You know, I think there are a few arguments and approaches. One Phil alluded to, which is it makes no sense at all. It's an absurd result that all these different types of entities are all financial institutions. They're clearly not in any common sense way. On the other hand, we have a Supreme Court that believes in the plain meaning of the statute and the statute says what it says. Um, you know, there's an argument, a similar argument, you know, you're swallowing the entire logic of the Supreme Court's decision in merit. On the other hand, the Supreme Court had a footnote that sort of preserved that issue. So, you know, then you, as Phil used the term nibbling around the edges, you know, uh, was the intermediary entity truly serving as an agent? What does an agent mean? You go back to the common law definition of agents and how that's developed. I think the real action is going to be in pending and in future transactions, trying to structure around this by limiting the role of the intermediary, you know, entities, to create an argument that they're not serving as agent, putting in a, you know, putting in, you know, language to be used later, you know, explicitly stating that XYZ entity is not serving as an agent, but only serving as a, whatever words, you know, smart lawyers are going to come up with. But uh, other than that, I think it's a tough argument to get around the plain language of the statute. Fair enough. What do you think, Phil? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 going to play advocate here for the clients, and I so I so agree with John. We're going to disagree, I think, on a couple of things coming up. Um, 
let me just say two things on, on what John said. On the agent point, this analysis that seemingly was adopted in this Michigan case that an agent has to have some sort of, you know, super smart role. Um, there's something a little condescending about describing someone as ministerial, their role, but I'll, I'll use the term. I don't get, I mean, I know what I'm about to describe are transactions with new technology that don't happen a lot. But when you go to the supermarket and, you know, you buy, let's say, uh, $31.69 of groceries and you don't hand the cashier a credit card, you hand him or her cash, they don't take that $50 for their own account. They're an agent for their employer, the, the supermarket, and they have to give you back whatever 50 minus 31.69 is, and they put the 31.69 in the cash register for their employer. You know, when you drive and there's a toll collector, again, those are becoming obsolete. They too take money uh, for their employer. Uh, the notion that um, one can only be an agent if one has like incredible discretionary authority is not in fact the real world. And it's not what the common law says. The common law says an agent is someone who takes on whatever the obligations are uh, for someone else and acts for someone else. And that can be a very limited or expansive role. It can be discretionary or not discretionary. Indeed, the principal has to maintain some level of control for there to be agency. Um, on John's point about drafting around, I don't think that's going to happen, John, because after all, when the transactions are being undertaken, they're being undertaken by a company and its shareholders, and the company's not going to be thinking about how do I maximize the chances that like a bankruptcy trustee someday may be able to recover if the company fails. I think that to the extent there is going to be drafting, it's going to be drafting to get within the safe harbor, not get outside the safe harbor, um, just by the nature of who's doing the transaction. So as a matter of statutory construction, I, I agree. I mean, I get the rhetorical value of saying, how can it be that a Racino um, merit management or the, the, the actual Racino in that case, or a media company like Tribune or you know a retailer like Nine West or an energy company like Boston Engineering, how can that be a financial institution well, the definition says a customer of a bank when the bank is acting as agent in connection with a securities contract is a financial institution. And it doesn't say the customer has to itself be in the banking business or the securities business. And, you know, as John said, uh, the Supreme Court has told us, read statutes literally. So I think the better side of the argument is that the Second Circuit got the statutory construction question right in Tribune. Well, what about this? Did they get this right? As a matter of, were they right in holding that as a matter of constitutional law, that section 546E preempted creditor fraudulent transfer claims that were brought under state law? So, so um, with this one, you want John, you, want, you go first. So to pick up on the theme of the plain meaning, you know, here I think the plain meaning disfavors the Second Circuit's conclusion. Congress 
explicitly limited section 546E to claims of the trustee. It would have been very easy to bar all non-bankruptcy law fraudulent conveyance claims, but it did not do so. Note that in the very same statute, it did that for certain types of charitable contributions. It did enact a preempting ban on all claims, no matter who brings them under whatever law. So they clearly knew how to do it and they clearly did not do it and limited the application to claims brought by a trustee. Yeah, I think plain meaning is firmly entrenched in at least the current court. You know, consistent with the plain meaning, and I think also leaning against the Second Circuit's preemption ruling is the fact that the bankruptcy code has a structure in place to deal with this precise issue. The automatic stay permits the estate representative to exclusively pursue these claims for a period of time. And for a variety of reasons, the stay may be vacated or maybe under a plan it becomes you know, permanent. But at some point, if the stay is vacated, then those claims may be pursued by creditors and the code is set up that way. So I think the second circuit made the mistake of disregarding the structure that Congress set up to deal with this issue and superimposed a preemption regime on top of and contrary to that scheme. I think another mistake the second circuit made I think they minimized the deep history and importance of fraudulent conveyance law at the state level. You know, I, as I recall, it goes back to the statute of Elizabeth in England in the 1600s and was imported into common law and then state statutes. Yes, the Supreme, the um, Constitution has a bankruptcy clause. Yes, there's Section 548 and Section 547 and 544, but there is a deeply entrenched parallel state fraudulent conveyance system. And I think within this issue is sort of a jurisprudential misapprehension. The Second Circuit talked about, well, there's nothing in the code that provides for reversion of these claims to creditors. I think that has it backwards. There's nothing in the code that conveys these claims to the estate representative. These claims reside with the creditors and always reside with the creditors, except for a stay, a, a stay is different from a conveyance. So in, in my view, the Second Circuit got that wrong. The claims, the, the, the creditor's claims under state law are never conveyed to the estate. 
the their state under the bankruptcy code. And once that stay is no longer in effect, then the, those claims are where they always were, except that the creditors are now free to, to pursue them. The prohibition no longer exists. So I think the preemption ruling was wrong. I think if as and when the Supreme Court gets a hold of it, it will overrule it. But um, that's my view. Bill, what do you think? So um, not surprisingly, I'm on the other side of this, certainly as an advocate, having advocated. Let me, let me start with a few things. Um, I do get the argument that says what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If we're going to apply plain meaning, we apply plain meaning. The Second Circuit addressed that in Tribune, and it said um, the following. Uh, it said that the court has, quote, repeatedly held that where courts are interpreting the meaning of a statutory provision, they should not allow extrinsic evidence of congressional purpose to alter the plain meaning of the statute. But whereas here we are assessing whether a statute preempts certain claims, we have been directed to consult evidence of congressional purpose to ascertain whether the statute has a preemptive effect beyond that provided by its plain terms. I do, I will say on this, on this issue, look, I think Justice Thomas has written a, a number of concurrences and dissents where he says that the Supreme Court should overrule every implied conflict preemption decision uh, it's issued over the last 100 or 150 years because either Congress expressly preempts or it doesn't preempt at all. And it may well be that he would have some colleagues on that court who would agree with that. But as long as the doctrine is alive, the doctrine asks the question not whether the statute expressly preempts, but does it impliedly preempt because would state law frustrate the purpose? Uh, and on John's second point about the charitable contribution exception, the Supreme Court in its implied preemption jurisprudence has said Congress's inclusion of an express preemption provision in one section does not in any way affect the analysis of whether another section impliedly preempts. Again, I think Justice Thomas and some others uh, uh, who have a conservative bent on the way you read on the law in general might say that's just completely wrong, but I think that is at least a body of law. On the stay point, and now let's get to the heart of it, I don't find the argument that the automatic stay is there um, and that provides protection at all convincing. The the Think about the way an automatic stay motion for relief would work. Your Honor, I'm the bankruptcy trustee. I cannot bring these claims. Tribune says I'm utterly barred from bringing the claims, so I'm going to let creditors bring them. And first off, any bankruptcy trustee who doesn't want to violate his or her fiduciary duties in that circumstance will bring such a motion and consent to relief from stay. And almost any bankruptcy judge is going to grant it because bankruptcy judges appropriately focus on what is in the interest of the bankruptcy estate. And they're being told the estate um, has no uh, skin in the game. And frankly, creditors may recover more if relief from the stay is granted. The argument, the congressional purpose here 
as the Second Circuit said in Tribune, is to minimize creditor recovery. 546E is designed to reduce creditor recovery because it has made the judgment that protecting the securities markets is more important. So I don't think the stay deals with that issue at all. Um, I do think two other things, and let me just back up here. I actually, I'm a bankruptcy litigator. It's what I do. I got first involved in these sort of cases right before Tribune and Lyondell. Um, I had never, like when I first got this, uh, contacted by a client, I said, well, of course the claim is barred by 546E. And they said, oh no, it's being brought by creditors. And I will say to you that that thought that you could work around 546E by having creditors bring the claim had never occurred to me. And if there's an argument for implied conflict preemption, it is exactly that. Congress doesn't think, can't think through every creative way someone may try to use state law to limit um, the application of federal law. And let me just say two things in that regard. Sometimes you'll just look at the facts of cases. I use the term end run. The Creditors Committee in Tribune, in its application and support for relief from the stay, said, quote, we are trying to end run 546A. This is a, quote, workaround, end quote, of 546A. Um, maybe this is too simplistic, but I think the idea is you're supposed to follow federal law, not work around federal law, not end run federal law. That's why we have an implied conflict doctrine. And think about it from the frustration purpose. Congress, there's lots of cases, is not supposed to write statutes. You're not supposed to construe statutes to be impotent. In Lyondell, these are just very quickly the facts. The bankruptcy plan created two trusts. Same trustee, uh, Ed Weisfeldner, who was the lead lawyer for the creditors committee, funded with the same source of money, same trustees. One was an estate cause of action trust. And then the plan had basically two sentences that basically said the following. To the extent the estate cannot bring any claim because 546E would block it, those claims are deemed to be, um, uh, the estate is, agrees not to assert those claims and they therefore revert to the creditors. Next sentence, the creditors hereby assign all such claims to the trustee. What difference does it make in terms of Congress whether Ed Weisfelner is bringing the claim wearing his litigation estate trust hat or his creditor hat. It's the same attack on settled securities transactions for the same purpose with the same dollars involved. And so I think if you're gonna have an implied conflict preemption doctrine, and I get the argument there shouldn't be one, but if you're gonna have one, um, then this case is it. One last point. There is a way for creditors to deal with this. Dismiss the bankruptcy. If you want to be, if you want, your, you can file a motion as a creditor for dismissal of the bankruptcy. And if the bankruptcy is dismissed, then you just get to go under state law. But if your recovery is net net going to be enhanced with the with, because you're in bankruptcy, then I would argue you have to take the bankruptcy code in full. You don't get to say, I like the bankruptcy code, except this 546E, let's X that out. Let's X out this provision. Let's X out that provision. you got to live with the good and the bad. That's the argument, I think, on the other side for implied conflict preemption. 
But I certainly agree with John, Finn, that this is a harder issue, frankly, than the statutory construction issue. Definitely. Now, Congress could amend the code and thereby overrule Tribune, either on the issue of statutory construction or even on the question of preemption, preemption always being a question of Congress's intent, or on both. Should it? Again, I'll let each of you state your case. Uh, Want me to take this one first, John, and then you you get this time to respond to me, and I don't get the I don't get the. No, it's fine. I'm happy to go okay. first. It's um, whichever way you want to do it. You go first. I don't I don't have a lot to say about this because, as a practical matter, this is so low on anything that Congress is likely to address anytime soon um, that it's you know hardly worth any practical discussion. Are these fixable by legislation? Absolutely. These ambiguities and concerns could easily be fixed. You could delete the reference to customer. You could just you know, eliminate the coda, if you will, to the definition of financial institution. You could make clear one way or another that when we said trustee may bring these claims, that's what we meant, and anybody else is free to bring them, or you could say the contrary. So the answer is yes, it's fixable by legislation, but I don't see it happening anytime soon or at all. And I'll leave it to Phil to wrap up. So I agree with both of the points you made. I agree it's not going to happen, which, by the way, is another argument for implied conflict preemption. One of the arguments made on the plaintiff side is Congress can fix it. If Congress amends the bankruptcy code in the next decade, if it enacts almost any piece of legislation in the next decade, unless the Congress changes, I will be somewhat surprised. But this is not high on its list of problems. Um, And I certainly agree that if it did, it could fix it. I would say a couple of things. First, it should not amend the statute to eliminate the preemption issue. Either we should have a bankruptcy trustee able to bring these claims uh, or we shouldn't. We shouldn't have this sort of, you know, yes, the creditors can bring them. You just change the name of the entity and you write a few different sentences in a bankruptcy plan. That strikes me as silly and a distinction without a difference. Look, I think that when you get to the policy question of should the statute be amended to elect, to, to change the definition of financial institution, one of the most significant thoughtful things said about 546E was said by the Third Circuit 21 years ago, 22 years ago in 99 at Resorts. It said the safe harbor stands, quote, at the intersection of two important national legislative policies on a collision course the policies of bankruptcy and securities law. And I think at its core, how you come out on this from a policy standpoint is which you think is more important. Bankruptcy lawyers, like the first you know, rule of the Ten Commandments is the absolute priority rule. Creditors get paid before shareholders. The notion that shareholders walk away with $8 billion in a leverage buyout and creditors don't get paid when the company becomes insolvent is sort of pretty anathema to basic bankruptcy principles. On the other hand, our cap, our securities markets and our securities law policies are all about having robust capital markets without transactions getting undermined. Um, and that's real. Uh, I'll go back to Lyondell. 
Lyondell, the announcement of the deal was, I think, in April of 07. It didn't close until, I think, and don't hold me to this, October of 07. The shares traded hands every day in between. Um, If there had been a big overhang of potential litigation like this, they wouldn't. And I will say, without naming names, um, the, the exercise price there was 48. I represented clients who bought you know, three days before the transaction closed at 47 and a half, 47 and three quarters. And then they were being sued because they didn't pay the bankruptcy estate 47 and three quarters. They paid the seller, another shareholder. They were being sued to get back the whole $48 per share that they got when the deal closed. If this law were out there, those markets would, I think, freeze up or that price would be very much depressed I obviously can't go into specifics, but I've actually given advice to clients about whether they should sell securities pending the closing of a leveraged transaction out of fear that the company might end up in bankruptcy and there might be a trans there might be a fraudulent transfer claim down the road. So I think where you come out on policy is whether you think the the goal of maximizing creditor recovery in this context is more important or less important than the goal of keeping robust securities markets. And all I will say is 546E reflects a balance on that. It basically says the goal of the security, protecting the securities markets is more important unless, unless it's an actual intentional fraudulent transfer made within two years of the bankruptcy filing. That is not carved out. That is not subject to the safe harbor. And it strikes me that that sort of compromise is not crazy uh, as a as a line to draw as a policy matter. But could you draw it differently? You could draw it differently if you want to draw it differently. Well, that wraps up our program. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, John. Thank you, Camille. That, that was great. And, and thanks to the City Bar for sponsoring um, this podcast. For those who missed the instructions for getting your CLE credit, I'll briefly repeat the procedure. Please email the City Bar Customer Relations Department at customerrelations at nycbar.org and provide your name and the name of the podcast. This has been Bankruptcy Code Safe Harbors and the code I announced earlier and ask for your CLE credit. And you'll exchange a couple of forms uh, via email with the City Bar that they'll send to you and then you'll get your certificate in about three to five business days thereafter. So thank you everybody. We hope you enjoyed our program and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.